Hello there and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. My name is Tom Switzer and I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. Now with the COVID crisis, CIS is focused on how best to revive the Australian economy and boost productivity. So we're committed to promoting policies that allow people to be free to innovate, that shake up the culture that has shackled the entrepreneurial spirit of the economy for too long. Now we at CIS can't think of a more qualified expert to talk about innovation than our special guest today. Matt Ridley is a distinguished British scientist and economist. Since 2013, he has sat as a conservative in the House of Lords. Matt's new book is called How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. The book published this year in 2020 builds on his bestseller, The Rational Optimist, published a decade ago in 2010. G'day Matt and welcome back to CIS. Um, thanks for having me on. It's, it, I've, I've always been a huge fan of CIS and it's lovely to be back with you. Okay, well, before we address the question of innovation and deregulation, uh, let's deal with the likely fallout from the COVID crisis. Now, in your book, you argue, quote, there will be terrible economic damage to be repaired when the pandemic ends. A deep recession is inevitable. Unemployment will greatly increase. Inflation will skyrocket. Many people's debts will become unsustainable. Trade protectionism will spread. These shocks will undoubtedly hit the poor the hardest, ruining many lives. Now, Matt, that's from your book. That's a very pessimistic uh, outlook, uh, given that you are widely regarded as one of the most optimistic thinkers in the past decade. Has COVID shaken your beliefs about progress? No, it hasn't. Um, in the long run, I'm still a, a determined optimist. But I've always said, and I said in The Rational Optimist, that there would be setbacks. There would be setbacks in some countries, in some years, and so on. And funnily enough, since that book came out in 2010, uh, traveling around the world and talking about it, I've been confronted with arguments that I should turn pessimist at every stage. So, you know, what about the Euro crisis? What about the war in Ukraine? What about the war in Syria? What about the Ebola pandemic? You can't still be an optimist after all that. <laughs> uh, and the answer is, uh, yes, I still can, because I think those are terrible setbacks for some people, but we will recover from them. This one is a bigger one than that. Mm. And I did say in The Rational Optimist, not everything's going to go right in the 21st century. Uh, pandemics are possible, and they could be very problematic. I actually can't quite remember how I phrased it, but I, just, I did use the word pandemic. Um, so I was aware that this sort of thing might happen. Uh, but I would add that, um, I mean, the pessimism I expressed in that paragraph back in the spring has proved to be right, I think. I think mm. the, the world is in a bad way as a result of this uh, pandemic. Uh, and it will take a lot to recover from it, but recover we will. And one of the things it'll do is it'll clear the undergrowth of uh, various uh, th problems so that we can recover in a more vigorous way afterwards, as long as we take the opportunity to do so. So and, and doing you know, that, what, you we've know, had bad pandemics you, before in 1890, uh, in 1918, in 1957. Uh, we always recover from them uh, and we will. And that's precisely why the world must learn the main lesson of your book, that prosperity comes from innovation. Uh, tell us more. Absolutely. I think that the, 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 the reason we have 
prosperity today compared with our ancestors two centuries ago. The reason that uh, global rates of poverty, of extreme poverty, have gone from over 90% a century ago to less than 9% today, an extraordinary change, quite unprecedented in human history, is because of innovation. There's nothing else to explain it. It's not because there's more people or because there's more land available or because the sun is shining stronger. It's because we've invented gadgets, widgets, and ways of operating that enable us to work for each other, improve each other's standard of living, be productive when we do so. Uh, and that's, that's, it's, it's all down to innovation. It's the most important fact about the modern world. And I argue one of the least well understood. We don't really understand why it happens, when and where it does. And we're not very good at switching it on and switching it off. Um, so, uh, I, there couldn't be a, if if we've got a, a terrible global setback in this year or two, as we probably have, then there couldn't be a more important theme to talk about than how we get innovation going uh, when it comes to an end. And by the way, the pandemic has reminded us of the cost of not doing innovation. Um, the we went we entered this pandemic with a creaky old-fashioned way of developing vaccines that hadn't been changed much in 30, 40, even 50 years. I write in the book about the development of the whooping cough vaccine in four flat years by two brilliant women in the 1930s. Um, that's, uh, that would be a good going even today. We need to speed up. We need to improve uh, the readiness to make vaccines in the world the reason we haven't done that is because we've been complacent and taken for granted that we've got enough innovation. We need to press the button on getting more of it. So what really changes the world and makes it more prosperous is innovation, not invention. What's the difference between innovation and invention, Matt? Well, in my mind, the difference is that invention is coming up with a new gadget, whereas uh, invent innovation is making that thing reliable, affordable, and available to people. And that's much harder work than we generally give, give credit for. We, we've told the stories about inventors again and again, but we don't tend to tell the stories about the innovators, the people who do the really hard slog of turning uh, inventions into innovations. Or in some cases, do innovating without really any invention at all. So if you take container shipping, uh, pushed by a guy called Malcolm McLean in the 1960s uh, on, on the world. He, you know, he forced the pace on that revolution. It dramatically cut the cost of trade all across the world. It's responsible more than anything else for the growth of world trade in the last 50 years, I suspect. Um, a huge improvement. It didn't involve inventing a new gadget at all. It just, invented, it just involved um, insisting that the thing big boxes could be taken off the back of trucks and put on ships and that they were a standard size uh, you know that's the innovation it's not really an invention and to demonstrate your point tell us about the old cartoon quote by uh, charles towns he was the the nobel prize winner for physics behind the lasers in 1964 tell us that quote yeah but that's he's talking about a beaver looking at the um, Hoover Dam. <laughs> that's, the, that's the nice part of that story, is that, is that the beaver is being asked, did you build the Hoover Dam? And he says, no, but it is based on an idea of mine. And all too often, you'll hear sort of scientists complaining, well, you know, how come he's making all that money? I had the idea. Yes, but he turned it into something practical, reliable, and available. Uh, and that was a lot of hard work. Okay, now the first half of your book it deals directly with stories about 
you know, individual innovators. Thomas Edison, you say he's one of 21 people who claim credit for identifying the light bulb. What distinguishes Edison from the others? Yeah, it's a really good question. Simultaneous invention is a, is a common phenomenon. People come up with the same idea at the same time. 21 people came up with the light bulb independently of each other. Um, and that's because the idea was ready, it was ripe, electricity was, was, was available suddenly for the first time, uh, and the techniques of making vacuums in glass was there. And it was pretty obvious that people were going to invent light bulbs. But what distinguished Thomas Edison was that he then set about employing a team to improve the light bulb by researching every detail of it with a huge amount of trial and error. Um, so that, for example, he tried 6,000 different types of plant material mm. before he settled upon Japanese bamboo to make the filament of the light bulb, because what he was after was something that would uh, be a, give a consistent amount of light and last a long time. So he spotted that the, the, the prize would not go to the person who invented this thing, but the person who made it reliable, made it available uh, to people uh, in a way, in a form that they could rely on. Uh, and so I think that's why he deserves to be called an innovator rather than an inventor. He also said two famous quotes from him that I love. One is that he said, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> And he also said that uh, uh, invention is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. It's not, it's not about being a creative genius. And one of the things that annoys me about this topic is that people talk, talk about creativity a lot. And for me, that feels like a, an appeal to some kind of special genius that innovators have and other people don't. And I don't think that's fair. I think lots of people have the capacity to be innovators. You just need to work hard at it and be very open-minded. Yes, and just say Edison died prematurely, someone would still have invented the light bulb, right? That's exactly right. And you can see this even more clearly with a more recent example, which I talk about, which is the search engine, probably the most important innovation of my mm -hmm. lifetime. I use it every day. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, if Sergey mm -hmm. Brin had never met Larry Page, we would still have search engines because lots of other companies, Yahoo and others, were already inventing search engines. Um, it's just we wouldn't call them Google. Okay, so just to clarify, your line is that the great scientific inventions were not done by scientists, but practical people uh, via painstaking trial and error work of discovery, uh, adaptation, improvement, that, and, that, and this is what slowly turns an idea into fact. That's your line. The, the, the history of flight is really interesting because it shows up a very clear example of how to do innovation right and how to do it wrong. Um, the wrong approach was Samuel Langley's. He got a huge government grant. He was a very famous astronomer. He went off and did it in secret. He invented an airplane, according to his own brilliance, in secret and launched it in front of a crowd and it crashed into the river, the Potomac River, and uh, within 20 feet. Ten days later, on an island off North Carolina, two uh, humble bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, did indeed get a flying machine into the air. And they uh, are um, uh, rightly credited with, with getting everything right because what they did was they consulted lots of people. They, they talked to people all around the world, including Australians. Um, mm -hmm. there, were a, there was an Australian who was, was pioneering some of the ideas on this. There were others. Uh, there were people who were working on gliders, people calculating the, the right shape for the, for, for the wing of something. Um, and... Uh, um, 
it, it, you know, the, the, Orville and Wilbur Wright just got the point that you had to draw upon lots of different minds to, to get this right and then do lots and lots of experiments. So they worked with gliders for several years before they even tried putting an engine on an aeroplane. Um, uh, they got the point that this was going to be an incremental marathon, not a, uh, an act of getting it all right in the, the first time. And you talk a lot about James Watt, Steve Jobs from Apple, uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Um, is there any innovator who is, if you like, a class above the others? I, I would argue that um, if you want to pick sort of the, the people who, who did it well over the years, I would pick out George Stevenson and the railways, very good example of someone who just got, who, who, who didn't just make one great innovation, a good locomotive. He also uh, developed new rails for the railways. He developed whole systems to go with it, and he kept improving his his uh, railway locomotive. Uh, a man of, of zero education, uh, but a brilliant engineer. Um, then Thomas Edison, he got the point that it was a matter of tinkering, of trial and error, of constant work. Um, the Wright brothers, it was said of them by the chap who took the photograph on the first day of them uh, taking off, he said they were the workingest boys I ever knew, <laughs> uh, which is a lovely expression. Yeah. And today I would pick out Jeff Bezos, because yeah. if you want to see someone who's changed the world pretty dramatically, has done so without necessarily inventing anything particularly mm. striking, uh, but has tried and tried and tried and failed, and failed, and failed as and well failed. a few times exactly yeah, yeah. no i mean uh, you know the story of amazon is a story of getting a lot yeah. a lot wrong over the years mm -hmm. I, I make that point in the book and so does bezos i mean i'm not mm. i'm not uh, criticizing him here but he knew and he says that you have to keep uh, trying things uh, and taking risks in order to achieve as much as as he has done and how he keeps it up um I once asked him, you know, what's, what's the secret? How do, you, how do you stop Amazon becoming a complacent, uh, non-innovative company now that it's huge? Because all big companies eventually become pretty bad at innovation. Uh, and he said, well, you have to build techniques into your management style to make sure that mavericks within the organization can still be heard uh, and... Uh, imaginative ideas can still reach the top of management. So, for example, he operates a sort of reverse veto system, where as long as, as, long as someone champions a batty idea, it has to be, it has to be escalated up to, to senior management. You can't outvote it on the way up, as it were. Um, and that's, that's the kind of, uh, kind of, it's an Edisonian approach, I suspect. Yeah, and of course you put Steve Jobs up there as well with Apple. Steve Jobs has done an, uh, is an extraordinary achiever with Apple, and he did it twice just to prove that it wasn't a fluke the first time. Mm. You know, he, they sacked him, he came back mm -hmm. and mm. Uh, turned it around and made it even more successful second time around. Uh, and and in the case of Steve Jobs, you can make the case that there's something heroic, there's something unique, uh, there's something about the personality. Um, that, that was different. Um, it's hard to tell the story of Apple as just 
any one of a successful, you know, computer companies. Um, it, it bears his imprint so strikingly, particularly things like realizing quite early on, and I remember being very struck when I first saw this, that computers didn't have to be functional boxes. They could look attractive. You know, <laughs> that was a surprisingly important um, breakthrough uh, insight that other people hadn't have. So, so Steve Jobs does stand out. And the great thing about Steve Jobs, of course, is that he was incredibly unreasonable. Um, you know, he would demand inhuman things of his staff. Uh, he would challenge himself with ridiculous goals. And he would quite often announce things that he was going to show you before he had done them. Mm. Um, so this is known as faking it till you make it. And <laughs> it's a dangerous game. He was lucky because Moore's law often bailed him out. In other words, the incredible incremental improvements in computing that kept, came along meant that by the time uh, a year had passed, his prophecy that he could develop such and such a product had come true. Um, but people who've tried to emulate that since have fallen rather flat on their face. I'll give you two examples. One is Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of uh, Theranos, which, who, who admired Steve Jobs enormously. And she um, basically said, I can miniaturize uh, blood test uh, diagnosed diagnostic machines. Uh, and she effectively faked it till she could make it. And the whole thing came crashing down after being with the most highly valued, valued startup in Silicon Valley for a while. And today... Elon Musk is in the habit of doing it. He's done it again this week. Um, he announced, this, I'm going to make a spectacular announcement about reducing the cost of batteries. When he did make the announcement, it was a bit of a damp squib, and $50 billion has been wiped off the value of uh, yeah. Tesla shares. So um, uh, I would argue that uh, fake, fake it till you make it is a pretty dangerous game. And um, it... it you know, you've got to be sure that you're in you're in a technology that can deliver the improvements uh, before you promise stuff. There's a I write in the book about vaporware, which is the announcement of software that you're going to produce, and then not producing it. And the reason you announce it is to try and frighten off your rivals. Um, and there are some pretty classic cases of that, and some of them are basically fraudulent. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we need to understand innovation frauds, fakes, failures, and fads, as well as innovation successes, I argue in the book. Okay, what about some famous Australian examples that, believe it or not, many Australians would not even be aware of? I'm thinking of the world's first feature-length movie. This was uh, about the, uh, the Kelly Gang. That would have been in the early 20th century. Uh, the world's first electronic pacemaker. Uh, the clinical development of penicillin. Uh, the black box. Google Maps. Uh, the first ultrasound scanner. Wi-Fi. Uh, the multi-channel cochlear implant. Uh, the spray-on skin for burn victims. I mean, what does that tell you about Australia, which, remember, is a relatively small commodity exporting and capital, import, uh, capital importing economy? What does that tell you about Australia? This is a very strong track record. And, uh, you know, it's a very small country in terms of population, uh, mm. and certainly was for most of its history, uh, and yet it has been highly innovative. Uh, and that suggests you've been getting something right in Australia in terms of giving people the freedom to go out there and innovate. Um, because you don't have the advantage of being 
in the middle of a gigantic market like the United States or Europe, uh, you know, the isolation is not helpful to innovators. They need to be to be present. Um, one of my favorite Australian innovations uh, is Barry Marshall's discovery that you can cure stomach ulcers with antibiotics because they are basically caused by a bacterium. And that took real unreasonable maverickness. You know, I mean, it was a very unpopular opinion at the time because the most uh, uh, lucrative drugs in the world at the time were for steering, curing uh, stomach ulcers and were um, basically treating the symptoms, not the causes. And so he was about to blow them out the water with his theory. And that's why nobody wanted to hear from him. And eventually yeah. he had to self-medicate. He had to give himself the bacterium, infect himself with stomach ulcers, and then take antibiotics to cure himself to prove the point. That's, that's a great example of the kind of Australian courage and um, obstinacy that uh, actually is, well, I'm, I'm trying to think of cricketing in parallels here. but <laughs> <laughs> And I should stress, by the way, that the, the first successful non-invasive treatment for obstructive sleep apnea, uh, that was created in large part by uh, Peter Farrell. Uh, he's the founder and executive chairman of ResMed. Peter's uh, a board member here at CIS, Matt. But getting back to innovation today, and in Australia, um, we're having this great debate about how we get out of the sort of post-COVID economy. There's an emerging school of thought that says that government should play a more prominent role, and uh, not just uh, during the pandemic, but in the aftermath of the pandemic. Uh, you may have heard of Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian, uh, his quip at the beginning of the pandemic back in March. Uh, it's been widely reflecting the views of a lot of Australians that just as there are no atheists on a sinking ship, uh, there are no free marketeers during a pandemic. Uh, but, but your argument, though, is that you need deregulation. That's a, that's a natural driver of innovation. Tell us more. Well, it's very clear that what you need for innovation is freedom. You need the freedom of the consumer to express his wishes, but the freedom of the, of the entrepreneur to, to go out and uh, uh, try different things, get things wrong, fail, try again, uh, raise money, all these different uh, features that, that are necessary. Um, and uh, far from the, the story of innovation being that government does it, history teaches the opposite. From the Song Empire versus the Ming Empire in China, where the, the, the decentralized liberal empire produced incredible innovations like paper money, uh, the compass, gunpowder, all of this kind of stuff. And then the centralized Dirigis top-down empire produced almost nothing in the way of innovation. That's the Ming. Um, uh, from that to um, the freedom of the Italian city-states, which made them very innovative, uh, through to the United States, where uh, it was basically a, a, a free uh, regime. The contrast between France and Germany on the one hand and Britain and America on another uh, in terms of their funding for research and development in the first half of the 20th century uh, is very striking. The Anglo-Saxon countries gave almost no government money to research and development and were more innovative than the uh, continental countries which did support them. So the, the argument that you need government to be funding innovation because otherwise it won't happen just is not true. We've seen examples throughout history of the case that entrepreneurs will do this themselves if given the chance. So what should governments do to encourage it? Um, oh, 
I should add that, of course, governments take 40% of our income. So it'd be a pity if they didn't shovel some of that back into innovation. You know, I mean, it, right. and they do and they should. Um, but, but putting that aside, what governments really need to be doing is clearing the barriers out of the way of entrepreneurs. Because if they try and pick winners and say, we know uh, which technologies are going to be the future, they're bound to get it wrong. Future's very hard to read. Um, better to say, look, we're going to speed up uh, approval for uh, devices and um, uh, new uh, vaccines and so on, because the worst thing you can do as a government is take decisions very slowly. Um, it, it's not the government saying no. The government never did say no to genetically modified organisms in Europe. It just took eight or 12 years to say yes, so all the companies gave up and left. Um, same with hydraulic fracturing in Europe uh, and so on. So there's, there's lots of examples of um, uh, where, where speed of decision-making by government could be critical. If you take medical devices today, we entered this pandemic without point-of-care DNA testing devices that, that you could, you know, the size of a box that you, could, that you could literally have in a workplace or a hospital or everywhere, and you could have an instant result from a test. I think they could have been invented five or even 10 years ago. Why weren't they on the market? Because it takes five or even 10 years to get medical, uh, to get licensing approval for a new medical device. Um, if you're the kind of person who can invent that kind of thing, then you look at that and you say, well, no, to hell with that. I'm off to invent a video game instead. Nobody, I don't need permission to do that. So I do think that re-looking again at the, at the regulatory barriers to innovation that have grown up, um, there are lots of other examples in nuclear power, in drones, in other things where we've, we've just thrown barriers in the way of people doing things that could benefit us. We're worried about people doing harm with these technologies, but in doing so, we prevented them doing good with these technologies. Yeah, and that's why the subheading of your book is titled Why Innovation Flourishes in Freedom. And you also gave a good example, the late 1990s, even a democratic administration of President Bill Clinton went out of its way to put in place uh, very liberal, libertarian rules regarding e-commerce. Yes, it's, it's a very interesting example, this, because um, it shows that uh, the growth of e-commerce in the 1990s and early 2000s was not an accident. It didn't just happen because the technology was ready to go. It also happened because Congress and the president, in that case, Bill Clinton, agreed upon a very liberal approach to uh, uh, people doing business online basically making it very easy for people to do business online and not be held responsible for uh, uh, the problems that, that arose uh, necessarily. I mean, obviously, to some extent, they are held responsible, but, but not to over-regulate in that sense. So if that hadn't happened, e-commerce would have developed much more slowly and much more patchily mm. around the world. Mm. Um, as it was, it took off in a spectacular way. Um, the dot-com bust then followed, but then it the real stuff did come through and we now have an extraordinary online world that we all use all the time. So that is an example of government deregulating or, or rather regulating with a deliberate eye on uh, not overdoing it that was very, very important in, in allowing uh, innovation to flourish.
Now, just to clarify, as the subheading uh, of your book makes clear, why innovation flourishes in freedom, the innovator has to be free to try and fail, but the consumer also has to be free. And just to recap that lovely line I mentioned before, innovation is the child of freedom and prosperity is its parent. Innovative societies are free societies. Uh, I get all that, but see your critics, and they've come out, they say you're cherry picking the history of innovation and that you leave out examples that weaken your claims for universal principles. This is the Washington Post review of your book. Innovations that involve academic or state funding are given short shrift by Ridley, leaving one to naively presume that whatever governments do by the way of investment or regulation hinders rather than helps the cause of progress. That's John Gertner in the Washington Post. How would you respond to John Gertner? Because he, he would say, for example, what about the atomic bomb, which depended almost entirely on state largesse? How would you respond to the Washington Post, Matt? Well, I would say that John Gertner didn't read the book properly. I mentioned the atomic bomb as an example of government largesse creating innovation. I say very clearly in the book, it is possible for the government to create innovations uh, from scratch without much help from the private sector. And I cite the, the, the atomic bomb. Uh, even in the case of the atomic bomb, by the way, the private sector was involved. You know, there was a lot of private sector involvement. So even that case. But apart from that case... It's not as easy to find clear-cut examples of things that only happened in, in, in the public sector. Yeah. Um, the public sector played a part in the role of in the development of the internet, yeah. GPS, all these other things, but so did the private sector. What, what I criticize is the monomaniacal view of a lot of people on the left in seeing only the role of the public sector and refusing to acknowledge the role of the, of the private sector yes. in this. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a question of redressing the balance. And I do not cherry pick. I tell lots of stories uh, mm. from all sorts of innovations, and I didn't pick them because they suited my thesis. He talked about uh, the government subsidisation of renewable energy. How would you respond to that? Yes, well, the government subsidisation of renewable energy is a real phenomenon, uh, and it has resulted in some innovation, but it has also been a huge disaster for the consumer. I mean, it's, it's yeah. resulted in higher energy costs all around the world. It's resulted in us going back to using the landscape to produce our energy, which we used to do in medieval times, rather than getting it from point sources. Uh, I, you know, look at, look at wind power. Um, there are often claims that the... That the uh, cost of wind power is now coming down dramatically so particularly offshore wind it's just not true if you look at the uh, audited accounts of the companies installing wind power they don't show any decline uh, in capital expenditure or operating expenditure i mean they may occasionally show some declines but on the whole they don't uh, and yet they are making cheaper and cheaper bids. Well, that's because they intend to walk away from those bids if the price of electricity has gone up by then, which they hope it will have done. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to accept renewable energy as an example of government doing innovation well, but one of ex an example of government doing innovation badly. As uh, Dieter Helm has said, and he's, a, uh, he's not a, uh, on the right of the political spectrum, but he is a critic of uh, our renewable energy policies, particularly in the UK, he has said uh, the problem uh, is that the, not only is the government bad at picking winners, but losers are good at picking governments. Um, in other words, uh, renewable energy is a crony capitalist system in which 
big companies have lobbied to get subsidies um, and preferential treatment uh, for very expensive options that are driving up the cost, particularly for poor people, of a vital resource, in this case, energy. So I'm no fan of renewable energy as it's currently developed. It's possible, of course, for um, solar power in particular to come down in price, and, and maybe it will. It's very useful in certain niche applications already, and maybe it will play a role. I've always said it will play some role. But the idea that it can provide all our power in the future is, I'm afraid, for the, for, for the birds. Okay, what about state capitalism of China? Now, we're often told that, you know, state capitalism is so effective and so threatening to the West, but people like us, Matt, the Center for Independent Studies, uh, the Chicago School of Economics, the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, the Institute for Economic Affairs in London, um, uh, where we all too often say that state capitalism is not supposed to work as well as our free market system. Thus, China should be shooting itself in the foot by pursuing capitalism or state capitalism. Now, your critics would point to the success of China's state-led capitalism, and uh, they'd say that's a way of undermining your argument that deregulation and competition drive innovation. How would you respond to that? Well, I don't think, I don't think that's, that's the right characterization of what's happened in China at all, because if you look at the compromise reached under Deng Xiaoping in the late 1970s, uh, it was basically that there was no freedom politically. You could not start a new political party, um, but there was a huge amount of freedom economically. You could start a new business. You could invent a new gadget. You could uh, be an entrepreneur. And in, if you did so, you would find far fewer bureaucratic petty rules in your way than in the West. So actually, the Chinese entrepreneur has been freer to develop um, his ideas to innovate uh, than in the West. And that's why you've got the growth of um, uh, companies like Alibaba and Tencent and all these extraordinary innovations. And they are innovative. I'm not denying that, that, that China has been more innovative than the United States in the last 20 years. But I would argue that is coming to an end. The Xi Jinping regime is quite different from what went before uh, and is no longer allowing economic freedom to the same extent uh, as, as, its, as previous um, uh, regimes did. Uh, and so uh, I, I think this period when China was very innovative will not last. China is now doing to itself what it did at the end of the Song Dynasty, which is, with a Mongol interruption, which we'll leave on one side, bring in a Ming empire that will um, uh, crush the, 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 the innovativeness out of the uh, um, Chinese economy. So I think now we are seeing state capitalism. Now we are seeing Xi's regime picking winners. Then I think it won't work nearly as well. I think for the last 30 years, we've, we've actually not seen that. Okay, let's bring this back to Australia because think tanks like CIS try to encourage political leaders to put in place uh, sound productivity enhancing reforms. In the 2016 election, you probably don't know this, Matt, but the then Prime Minister um, Malcolm Turnbull uh, lost uh, Tony Abbott's huge majority and he nearly lost a parliamentary majority uh, at that year's election. And some pundits blame his repeated insistence that Australia needed to embrace innovation. And he kept coining the term innovation on the election campaign trail. And his critics suggested that for many ordinary people, working class folks, lower middle class folks who have been disoriented already by the pace of radical socioeconomic change over the last few decades, innovation to them felt like 
I'm going to lose my job. So how do we better sell innovation to the general public? That's a really good point, and it's one that, that, that does concern me, because if you look at reactions to innovation, they are surprisingly negative uh, at all times and in all places. Um, I go through examples in the book of how uh, most innovations were actually uh, rejected or resented um, even when they were beginning to do good. Coffee, for example, you know, coffee was banned for a long time by a lot of countries because they, but basically the lobbying by the wine and beer industry and also rulers who didn't like people gathering in coffee houses and talking about whether rulers were doing a good job. Um, but the, the, so that's just a kind of frivolous example. But more recently yeah, with sure. genetic technologies, with nuclear technologies, et cetera, there has been a, a very well-organized resistance to innovation by scaring people about what innovation means. And one of the things we've got to do is get across the point that innovation does not lead to mass unemployment. Uh, sure, you can have innovation in one particular area that results in, in no more jobs in that area. We don't need wick trimmers to trim the wicks of candles these days. But uh, overall, innovation has produced more jobs, more kinds of jobs, and better kinds of jobs uh, over history. And the kind of thing we were hearing a few years ago, and this might have been the time when Malcolm Turnbull was, was talking about it, that artificial intelligence would do away with employment mm -hmm. um, uh, is, is nonsense. And we know it's nonsense because that's what they, the Luddites said about threshing machines. That's what um, mm -hmm. uh, people said about computers in factories in the 1960s. Um, uh, and what happens always in these cases is that new kinds of jobs emerge. You know, try explaining what a software engineer is or a flight attendant to a Victorian. You know, they, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. So um, uh, I, I think that's the big myth that we do have to nail uh, in order to get the public on the side of innovation. Because, you know, people love adopting innovations that are useful to them. Look at the way they react to uh, mobile phones and so on. But they also love taking on board arguments that innovations are going to threaten their lives. And there are some very unscrupulous people out there making very uh, mendacious arguments about that. What about negative reactions to, say, social media, which is your quintessential innovation? Uh, surely uh, an argument could be made that social media has uh, uh, further uh, made the political discourse, uh, the polarisation more toxic. Um, that's clearly an unintended consequence of social media, right? I would agree. And it's not something I foresaw. I thought the rise of social media would enable us all to see each other's point of view and we would, it would be kumbaya and all lovely. Be a global uh, village. <laughs> be a global village. Turned out not to be the case. And I must say, I was taken by surprise by that. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater because social media is a fantastic boon to most people who want to share pictures of their puppy with their grandchildren or whatever <laughs> it might be. Indeed. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the, the rampant social engagement that it allows, you know, I watch the younger generation loving social media, even while it turns them into um, slightly polarized political people, admittedly, you know, so that, that it, it's like all communications technologies come with downsides. Printing, we can all agree, was on the whole a good thing. It's wonderful to be able to print books, make them cheap, make them available to people. But Martin Luther didn't half exploit it as one of the great <laughs> innovators of printing in the early years uh, by turning it into a religious war, um, a, a reformation. I mean, he had some good points to make, but he didn't half 
polarize the world. Likewise, radio is a great innovation. It's wonderfully mm. useful. We all love it. Uh, but Hitler and Mussolini didn't half use radio to to mm. to um, uh, um, propagandize populations. So all technologies have uh, benefits and disadvantages in in communication. And I think we are dis we are noticing and discovering the downsides of social media at the moment, but we mustn't forget the upsides as well. Well, okay, let's conclude with the issue that I raised at the beginning of the program. We face several crises, Matt, obviously a health crisis with the pandemic, uh, an economic crisis with the virus-induced recession, and skyrocketing debt, by the way. Uh, I'd argue a cultural crisis with the cancel culture and identity politics that seeks to divide people, mainly in the Western world. There's a strategic crisis, that is the rise of China and the resurgence of Russia and an uncertain America. Uh, some will say a climate crisis or, or at least an energy crisis. Uh, given all this doom and gloom and everything you've been saying today, are you still the rational optimist? <laughs> Yeah, you've almost depressed me there. Those are indeed <laughs> like, terrifying like Basil, things. Matt, it's like the old Basil Fawlty episode in uh, Fawlty Towers when the hotel inspector reads out the long list of complaints about the hotel and Basil Fawlty says, otherwise okay? <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> I'd <laughs> forgotten that. But Cheer us up. Yeah, yeah, apart from that, Mrs Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, well... Uh, sure you know, first of all, uh, uh, yes, I agree with you. These are all crises. Um, the cultural crisis worries me most uh, of those because I think that it's not impossible. We're living through a end of the Roman Empire, uh, start of the Dark Ages, descent into mysticism based around identity politics and, and uh, you know, it's, it's the closure of the mind, the, the attack on free speech that bothers me most. So it's possible that, as Andrew Sullivan says, we may be living through the, um, uh, uh, the an extinction event for liberal democracy. But I don't think so. Uh, I think we've been in far worse crises before. I mean, you could have read, read if we'd been having this conversation in 1933, say, yeah. uh, or in 1913, um, or indeed at any time in history, I think the list would have been longer and more worrying than it is today. Because unlike then, we've got technologies, we've got uh, living standards improving. I mean, try telling an African that these have been terrible years, these last 10 years. They haven't. They've been spectacular years for Africa, much more so than for the West. The income of the average Ethiopian has doubled since 2010. That's extraordinary in real terms. You know, uh, uh, malaria mortality has halved in the last 20 years. Um, it was going up till 2003. It's now going down. These are the things. Uh, pneumococcus was killing a um, quarter of a million kids a year. That we now have a vaccine to it. I could go on. The, let's just get away from our little Western obsessions with, you know, pronouns and uh, a degree <laughs> or two of climate warming and think about what the real world is like for most people in places like Africa and say, can you really tell me this is a bad time? You know, there are now fewer wars going on than at any time in history. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I could, I, we're spilling less oil in the ocean than ever before. You know, there are all sorts of, we're reforesting the world. There are, when I was, 
a boy, there were 5,000 humpback whales left in the world. Uh, there are now 80,000 in the world. Okay, one of them just swam up a river in Australia trying to find its way through the continent. That didn't work, but, you know, there are so many that they're able to do things like that. So uh, I can give you a very long list of things that are going right, and I would argue that the incremental, gradual, unreported good stuff that happens all the time in the background through the work of entrepreneurs and ordinary people is in the end more powerful than the... Uh, the shocks and the nastiness that comes from terrorists and um, uh, uh, you know whatever else it might be. So, so um, yes, I'm still a rational optimist, but of course I could be wrong. You know, I mean, I've never claimed to have perfect future 2020 vision. Okay, Matt. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time and. On behalf of uh, CIS friends and supporters and my colleagues and those of you tuning in, thank you so much for being with CIS today. I think the message here is that the um, enthusiastic entrepreneurs rather than government, uh, it's they who can drive Australian innovation. And uh, you've helped here give Australia confidence that uh, we can succeed uh, without the heavy hand of state intervention. Thanks so much for being with us and all the very best with the book. Tom, it's great to talk to you as ever. I'm Tom Switzer and I hope you can tune in next time. Now for decades, CIS has been a fiercely independent voice working tirelessly to deliver evidence-based public policy. Check out the links on screen to see how you can get involved with CIS. We rely solely on generosity of people like you for donations to advance our classical liberal cause. And to get notified of future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel and click the notification bell.